This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover these things for Slate, and the whole magazine is trying to model really smart community distancing this week, which means we're all working from home, we're washing our hands, we're avoiding unnecessary travel, and yes, we're podcasting from our closets. So welcome to the new normal, now with extra piles of sweaters. Uh, There has been an immense amount of Supreme Court activity these last few weeks. We're going to try to hit the high points and catch up with the rest of it with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern in our new bonus segment for Slate Plus members. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you should check it out at slate.com slash amicus plus. Suffice to say that the 5-4 madness continues apace at the high court. Uh, The court just this week allowed the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy that we covered in a show in December to go forward over a stinging dissent by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And it remains to be seen whether the court will continue to hear arguments in the coming weeks. But we promised we would do this week's show about June Medical. That was the big abortion case that was argued last week at the Supreme Court. We also wanted to give a little news you can use about, well, the law of pandemics. Luckily, we have a guest today who is an expert on both those things, and we're just delighted to have her back on the show. Michelle Goodwin is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her brand new book, Policing the Womb, is out this month from Cambridge University Press. It is astounding. She's also faculty in the Stem Cell Research Center, Gender and Sexuality Studies Department, Program in Public Health, and the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society. In other words, I think she's kind of the perfect guest for this moment. So welcome back to Amicus Michelle. It is a pleasure to be with you, Dahlia. Thank you so very much for having me back on your show. So let's start with June Medical. I know it feels like it was 100 years ago, uh, but it was only a week ago that arguments were heard. And I wonder if you can just briefly lay out why it is that the Supreme Court is basically rehearing a case now about admitting privileges for abortion providers, given that this issue I thought was resolved in Whole Women's Health in 2016. You know, it's it's stunning that the Supreme Court is rehearing uh, this case. So to, to understand the case in its broader context, in 2016, in a five to three opinion that was written by Justice uh, Breyer, the Supreme Court struck down two Texas laws, 
one mandating admitting privileges uh, by doctors and the doctors who perform abortions, let's be clear. And then the second was to turn clinics into ambulatory surgical centers. Both laws were struck down. There was a robust empirical record from the district court level, which helped to show that one, these laws related nothing to promoting or protecting the health of individuals who sought to have abortions. It, two, they resulted in the shuttering of more than half of the clinics that provide abortions in the state of Texas. Three, they had a dramatic uh, impact on the lives of individuals who sought to have abortions, uh, resulting in some having to drive hours distance in order to reach clinics and uh, keeping in mind that some of those individuals might have been working class, middle class, or poor. This also resulted in other kinds of socioeconomic hardships. Think of they might have children, um, the cost of that kind of transportation, the fact that they might have to, it would have to, given Texas laws come back, um, you know, not just for one visit, but um, because of Texas's um, informed consent standards having to come back again. So, you know, ultimately, the court found based on many different modes of analysis, a robust empirical record, an empirical record that showed that, you know, the quality of care for patients was not uh, reduced nor maximized by doctors being able to have admitting privileges. Uh, the court struck that down. Now, as a different court at that time, a five to three opinion, and as your um, listeners will likely think, well, why 5-3, not 5-4? Well, this was in the wake of Justice Scalia's death. And also, um, there was still um, on the court um, a, a more um, reasonable justice and Justice Kennedy, at least on matters such as this. You know, and let, let's be clear, Justice Kennedy was not always a friend of the causes that affect women's lives, but on this, in this particular instance, he was with the majority. Now, that was only, you know, three years ago, uh, three and a half years ago, um, almost four years ago. It's highly unusual that the court would revisit a case such as this, which nearly verbatim is the same language that comes out of Texas. These hospital admitting privilege um, laws that were passed throughout the country uh, were just part of a kind of package circulated by states where the attempt has been to undermine uh, abortion care access by um, basically um, sending the same kind of legislation through legislatures across the country as, as many as could be you know possible. And so what's highly unusual about this case is that this was vetted just very recently. Um, and the Supreme Court was quite clear in its ruling. But the court has changed since then. So Justice Gorsuch is now on the court, and so is Justice Kavanaugh. And that in of itself uh, changes the balance of the court. Um, it further uh, entrenches uh, a certain ideology on the court, given their prior records, and it 
is causing alarm. And to be clear, the type of alarm um, that it causes should not just be for those who are concerned about reproductive health rights and justice. The fact that the court would so quickly review uh, a decision such as this um, should cause alarm with relation to the uh, value of precedent in any case. And, you know, I, I want to caveat and, and bracket that, too, because while we talk about uh, precedent and how unusual uh, this happens to be, uh, it's also, we, we must also think about this in nuanced ways. So if we we're thinking about uh, holding on to precedent, then we might never have had Brown, right? Because Plessy v. Ferguson made clear that separate but equal was fine in the United States, even if we knew that actually separate wasn't necessarily equal. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education overturned that. So there are times in which, in fact, we want to strike down precedent. Think about Karamatsu, think about Buck v. Bell, so many different cases. Uh, But that's not this case, (laughs) to be clear. But one other thing that's worth noting in this case is that the Fifth Circuit saw that this law was totally permissible, uh, even in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in uh, Whole Woman's Health. That, too, is striking. You might think about that um, within the relationship of um, Brown v. Board of Education as an analogy, right? So you imagine that Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Imagine if there were municipalities, you know, cities and states that said, well, you know, that only applies to Black people in Kansas, <laughs> That doesn't apply in Louisiana. That doesn't apply in Georgia or in Alabama. You say that that was absolutely ludicrous, the idea that Brown would only apply to one state uh, and not others. And that's essentially what we have in this case uh, with the Fifth Circuit saying, well, you know, Louisiana can go a different way. And that, too, is alarming. And Michelle, there's a a sort of ancillary question that comes up in June Medical that I think didn't get enough attention, and that is just this question about whether physicians and abortion providers have what's called third-party standing to sue on behalf of their clients. And really, if you take away decades of third-party standing, what you're doing is saying pregnant woman, possibly indigent, in deep distress – you have to stay pregnant for four years for the pendency of this lawsuit. Uh, and, and if somehow your pregnancy ends, uh, you no longer have standing. So, so standing, third party standing that physicians should be able to bring these suits on behalf of their clients. It, it has been uncontroversial. Now it's suddenly on the table. And let's just listen for one second to Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, he seemed to be, I think, at oral argument last week, the main proponent of the idea that maybe abortion providers should not have standing to sue because they're not acting in the best interests of their patients. Let's listen. Really, that's amazing. You think that if the plaintiff actually has interests that are directly contrary to those of the those individuals on whose behalf the plaintiff is claiming to sue, nevertheless, that plaintiff can have standing? If the plaintiff is directly regulated by the law, this court has allowed an attorney to bring third-party claims against a statute that capped attorney's fees in favor of clients. Well, that's amazing. Let's, I mean, I, I, 
Michelle, can you talk about what the impact of doing away with third party standing would be if that were the way the court decided to evade the bigger issues here? Well, basically, what that means is shackling women and uh, and tethering them and persons who have the ability to become pregnant to the lives that they would otherwise choose not to have, right? So that would mean that uh, physicians are not able to intervene on behalf uh, of their patient. And it also undermines the reality of what these relationships happen to be. And it's a, it's a complicated space too, if we were to think about it. For so long, um, the history has been that the rights of, of women um, with relation to abortion were actually tethered to their doctors. So if you think about Roe v. Wade itself, it was a case that, yes, introduced the language of choice, but it decriminalized abortions, meaning that it was really about the doctors themselves. And even though Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, changed the dynamics of that. And Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke to that, in fact, in her um, nomination hearings to the Supreme Court. The reality is that for so much of the jurisprudence about abortion itself um, has been connected to doctors, and we could debate whether that should be or not. But eliminating doctors from being able to have standing to protect the interest of their patients actually undermines the validity of that relationship. It undermines the reality and the nuance of that relationship. Now, I don't think that women's reproductive rights need to be litigated through um, their gynecologists and obstetricians, but I also think it's highly problematic to suggest that those who are seeking to operate in the best interest of their patients and advocate for their patients in this regard, that they don't have standing is absolutely ridiculous. I also think that it's problematic in instances such as this, given that so much of the targeted regulations of abortion providers trap laws which have targeted both uh, abortion providers as clinics and also doctors. They have been on the front lines of those attacks. Between 2010 and 2013, there was more anti-abortion legislation that was proposed and enacted than and in the uh, three decades prior combined, and much of that was targeting uh, the doctors and the clinics as a means of undermining women's access to abortion. And so I think that, you know, when, when we hear Justice Alito wanting to undermine and to strip that, um, that right from, uh, from physicians, I think it's highly problematic. One of the issues that I think the court elided a little bit, Michelle, in oral argument is this fundamental question. You, you said it yourself. Justice Breyer really did do a meticulous job in whole women's health of trying to figure out if there are any medical benefits to having admitting privileges. He, he determined there really weren't any. And somehow we're back in this conversation about maybe it's different in Louisiana and Texas. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg at argument was making, I think, the point that 
admitting privileges aren't even tethered to the local hospital, uh, where which is sort of within this 30-mile radius for the abortion provider. That doesn't make sense given the reality of where women may be, even if they needed to be admitted. So let's listen to her for a minute. What I sense t- does the 30-mile limit make, considering that certainly for medication abortions and for the overwhelming number of other abortions. Justice if Gins- a woman has a problem, it will be her local hospital that will, she will need to go to for the care, not something 30 miles from the clinic, which does have no necessary relationship to where she lives. Can you talk for just a minute about what lived life on the ground is uh, in Louisiana when you may be sent home? Uh, it may be a medication abortion, but the chance that you need to be admitted to a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic actually makes no sense at all? Well, there are so many reasons why it, in fact, makes no sense, which shows that these are really politicized power plays, right? So first... These are not admitting privileges that are required in so many other categories of medical treatment that actually happen to be far more risky for uh, women. And a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than she is by having an abortion. That's the first. The second is that there's federal law, EMTALA, which requires that any person who's in a status of emer- emergency must be admitted to any hospital and stabilized. So the very notion behind, oh, doctors need these admitting privileges because otherwise, if there's an emergency, their patient can't be seen is actually inaccurate. It's not true. There's a federal law that protects every person uh, who's in any emergency being able to go to any hospital. They can't be dumped. They must be seen and they must be stabilized. So the very idea that the doctors need this in order for their patients to be seen at any hospital is just so absolutely inaccurate. The other thing is that because abortions happen to be so safe, uh, and in whole woman's health, Justice Breyer went through the record, right? You know, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to die due to an abortion. Colonoscopies are far more risky uh, than having an abortion, uh, tonsillectomies, and, and so forth. You go down the line of the very things that people have on a regular basis. They're all far more dangerous uh, and risky in terms of death and having an abortion. When doctors have admitting privileges, this means that they're going to bring a certain number of patients to be served at that hospital, right? The sort of predictability of doctors bringing patients in. For those who are performing this procedure, they can't guarantee that because, in fact, abortions are, in fact, that safe. And so that's really important to keep in mind in terms of what happens on the ground. And you're right. Abortion is not just a surgical procedure. Um, abortions can be had through um, taking um, pills as well and patients at home to take those pills. And given the fact that abortion clinics now are, you know, so far and widespread in between, you know, a person may live miles, maybe even hundreds of miles away from uh, 
the clinic in which he or the clinic in which he has served, or he if it's a if it's a trans man. And so on the ground, this doesn't make any sense. In fact, what it is is it's burdensome, um, it's stigmatizing. And it does not relate to the health and the science and the safety of the procedure um, itself. There's so many ways in which this is um, very clearly an attempt to undermine access to this medical procedure. It does not relate to health and science in any kind of way, in any kind of practical way, in any kind of on-the-ground way. There are outpatient surgeries um, that people have that are all uh, far more risky than an abortion is. And I think that part of the rhetoric around uh, abortion um, that has been played out by state legislators, uh, by members of Congress, and so forth, has really changed how people see abortion in ways that just simply don't match the reality of what it happens to be. For that, it's important to revisit Roe v. Wade and Justice Blackman's opinion. And there, too, there was, you know, a kind of opening and a digging through an empirical record. The pilgrims practiced abortion, right? Abortion had been legal in the United States. And we could talk more about this, you know, um, if you want in the show. But, you know, the reality is that abortion, when it became illegal, that too was a politicized move, right? You know, nearly 100% of reproductive health care up until around the time of the Civil War had been done by women. Half had been Black women. The move to stigmatize midwives who did all of this work, um, whether it's birth planning, contraception, abortion, prenatal care, etc. The move away from that was really facilitated by the American Medical Association and two doctors who led the way, Horatio Storer and Joseph DeLee. You know, these were the sort of forerunners of gynecology and obstetrics, and they wanted to move women quite explicitly out of doing this work. Uh, they wrote in their pamphlets and books about how they were stigmatized and how they were uh, teased by other male doctors who told them they're doing nothing more than women's work. And it was at a time in which women were banned from going to medical schools and whatnot. And one of the ways of getting women out of the way of all reproductive health care was to politicize abortion. And it worked and to try to criminalize abortion and the women who performed them. And racist ideology was used and much of the kind of ideology we see to do today. Um, the AMA got involved in anti-immigration campaigns. This was part of the anti-abortion movement. Uh, and it was quite successful. They wrote about how important it was that white women use their loins and go north, west, and south around the time of, you know, the liberation of Black people from slavery. And so, so, you know, when we think about the broader context of what June Medical means and, you know, what on the ground these kinds of movements have meant in the United States, let's be clear that this goes alongside, you know, the rise of white supremacy, which I think, you know, if, if it hadn't been for Heather Heyer's death a few years ago, might have been really difficult for people to understand, right? And I said, like, what in the world? Could, there's no way that we could connect anti-immigration, racism, and white supremacy uh, with reproductive health care. But that's beginning to become far more clear. And there are those who are doing the research 
which you're showing it, right? You know, so, if, you know, for those who are doing research on the rise of white su- supremacy, and they're following, you know, what they're doing on Facebook and on Instagram and whatnot, um, abortion is part of their ideological, you know, platform, get rid of it. And so, you know, there is a broader conversation for us to have in terms of not just what this means in the court, um, at the circuit court level, and now with the Supreme Court, but also the kinds of social movements that are aligning with this are really problematic. And it also goes to the sort of subtle point you made uh, up top, Michelle, which is for a very long time, uh, doctors' interests were not aligned necessarily with their obstetric patients for all the reasons you've just described. And then, you know, Justice Blackman and Rose sort of lashes the doctor and the mother together as though they are one person with the same interests. And here now we have uh, Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito trying to say, oh, no, their interests are actually at odds. So it is this a little bit of a paradox that their interests have never been perfectly aligned, but they're also not on a collision course the way Justice Alito would have it. But it does mean sort of threading this very, very fine analytic needle and saying, actually, doctors have autonomy. Actually, pregnant women have autonomy. And actually, uh, that's a little bit complicated. And historically, and as you say, for all sorts of race-based and income-based reasons, uh, a really, really complicated thing to parse. I I wonder if you probably agree. I think everybody who uh, watched and heard oral argument agrees that it's all going to come down to John Roberts. And he seemed very fussed about the question you raised, uh, which is maybe Texas and Louisiana are different. Maybe we just have to look at the states separately, and maybe there is some reason to relitigate this over and over. Let's listen to him for a second. Do you agree that the benefits inquiry um, under the law is going to be the same in every case, regardless of which state we're talking about? I mean, I understand the idea that the impact might be different in different places, but as far as the benefits of the law, that's going to be the same in each state, isn't it? Michelle, given that you framed this initially as a referendum on stare decisis and the role of precedent, can you make any sense of what it is that John Roberts was trying to do and where this may go in his hands? Well, the hope, so for those who are hopeful, it's been that Justice Roberts will care about his legacy and that he has articulated in the past that the Supreme Court is not comprised of Trump judges or justices or Obama uh, justices. He, he made that uh, as a statement about the Supreme Court and also the lower courts as a means of uh, showing the or attempting to show the objectivity of the court, and that the court will be independent and it will be discerning, discerning based on the record that comes uh, before it. But just as the clip that you just played shows, this may be far more complicated than those who are hopeful, (laughs) are mindful uh, about, you know, I've been part of the group that um, has said that, look, this will come down to uh, Justice Roberts. It will come down to how he uh, perceives of his legacy uh, and a legacy about seeing the validity of the court and not just simply a politicized court. 
which is sympathetic to the uh, Republican Party, uh, much of which Justice Sotomayor has now accused the Supreme Court of being. It's a wait and see. I mean, I wish that I could uh, have that crystal ball (laughs) to be able to predict. But I will say this, that the fact that uh, we see this being relitigated, the fact that it's being litigated at all, the fact that in 2020, we're still debating these types of issues, when the United States leads the developed world in maternal mortality, and the very states like Louisiana, and Texas are considered the deadliest places in the developed world to give birth. Those are not just the deadliest places in the United States. It was like the deadliest places in the developed world. And if you go to the CIA website, that Central Intelligence Agency, you'll see that the United States ranks 50th, 51st in the world in terms of maternal health and safety, that is, keeping women alive during their birth. You'll see countries that are rated ahead of the United States uh, are former, you know, war-torn, where genocides have taken place, like Bosnia. And so in that context, one can't help but see this kind of momentum towards shackling uh, the rights of women as being a referendum against the independence and autonomy um, and even um, the livelihood of women. It's important to understand this case, and not with hyperbole, but really, these are life and death matters in the United States. And these very states where these challenges are taking place, let's be clear, they're not only the deadliest places in the developed world and with horrific records in the United States, but that African American women are three and a half to four times more likely generally within the United States to die during pregnancy. And in some of these states, the rate of death is 17 times as high as their white counterparts. And what we haven't seen is the same kind of momentum and action and interest in these states about keeping women alive during these pregnancies. And that is really the horror behind what is going on. We have the statistics, we have the data, right? And so with that, this leaves us only to see the political machinations of what this all happens to be. It's not about preserving the health and safety of women at all. It's not about holding doctors accountable in any kind of way. It's a different kind of agenda that we see going on here. Now let's return to our conversation with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, University of California, Irvine School of Law. And and it's worth just flagging that your book, your brand new book, Policing the Womb, opened my eyes uh, in a hundred new ways uh, about the creeping Handmaid's Tale world we're living in now of using the criminal law, among other things, to privilege the rights of fetuses over actual living women, including actual shackling, uh, which you describe. And I think it's really of a piece with this move you're describing. Michelle, I want to turn, if we could, to coronavirus. Um, Yes. You have done (laughs) so much thinking, I think, about these issues of public health, uh, international public health, and 
civil liberties. And, and of course, one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on the show is because those two seem to be smashing into each other uh, now in this country. You serve on the executive committee and the national board of the American Civil Liberties Union. So I, I think my just first framing question is, how do we even think about the tension between these very American ideas of freedom, the ability to walk and to speak and to move and to assemble against the backdrop of the kinds of measures we're seeing put into place even today uh, in places like China, in places like Italy. How do you even just help me look at the landscape uh, because I see just a fundamental, possibly intractable tension between ideas of liberty, the way we conceive of them in this country, and it seems what needs to be done to control a pandemic. It's an excellent question. I just love being on your show, right? You ask such <laughs> brilliant questions. So, so if we're to understand the history of the parents patri authority that the state has, we could look back to 1905 and the Supreme Court's ruling in Jacobson v. Massachusetts. It's a case wherein an individual refused to be vaccinated uh, in his local community. And the case goes to the Supreme Court. Now, in this instance, for an individual who refused to be vaccinated, they could have paid a fine and he didn't want to pay the fine. The Supreme Court, in ruling against this individual, said that it is within the state's authority to protect the health and safety of the community. And this further undergirds really the state's authority with regard to protecting health and safety and imposing certain conditions on individuals in order to do so. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the court uses that same type of logic in a case that doesn't deal with the public health, although the court claims that it does. And that's in Buck v. Bell in 1927. It's a case that uh, involves a poor white girl who at 16, Carrie, who had been raped by her employer's nephew. She becomes pregnant. And in the state of Virginia, uh, they had enacted a law that provided for compulsory sterilization of people who were considered to be socially, mor morally unfit. When the Supreme Court sanctions this in a horrific ruling that ushers in eugenics into the United States, uh, which ultimately affects tens of thousands of people being sterilized against their will in the United States, children as young as 10, it eventually becomes racialized and known as the Mississippi appendectomy. That is uh, doctors lying to parents of kids in Mississippi and in Georgia and other places saying they just need an appendectomy and basically sterilize sterilizing little black girls. Um, what we see in that is the public health being used as a proxy for something that is nativist, xenophobic, racist, or discriminatory against individuals who have disabilities. The concern then is what are the ways in which um, the state is to mediate then public health and not fall prey to nativist types of concerns. So for example, one might say, well, is it a nativist type of concern that all travel now is blocked from Europe with the exception from uh, the UK? How does that relate to health 
and science. And what's really important here, and we saw this with, you know, Casey Hickox in Maine, when the governor, after she had been working with doctors without borders and, and helping individuals came back, had not tested positive for Ebola, but the governor of Maine thought, well, she should be quarantined anyway. Uh, fortunately, a district court disagreed and sought an empirical record. <laughs> if a person does not test positive, you cannot just simply limit that person's civil liberties, which deny them the opportunity to be able to work, socialize with others, etc. And so in these times, while we want to be careful and practice exactly what they're doing at Slate, which is to be preventative and proactive, we also want to be mindful of real empirics, health and science data to get a public health record amassed to do the kinds of things that are proactive, informative to a public. And in this particular instance, we have lost opportunities. For example, we rejected tests that we could have had in the United States that would have been provided through UN agencies. We said, well, we will create our own. We saw that there were tests uh, that uh, were done in the state of Washington, but the tests were not reviewed at all. And so they expired. We're still not doing tests, um, right? There are people who are flying back to the United States from Italy, but not being tested yet uh, here. There are some universities that at first were told, well, they couldn't develop their own coronavirus tests. Um, and some went ahead and did so anyway, and now they're being told that they can. So what we haven't had is the type of uh, coordination from the federal government that we could have had to be more proactive, to calm concerns, and then to set pathways forward. What we also see is that there are institutions that are taking these matters now into their own hands until, you know, there is more coherence coming from federal and state level. We see that with universities, for example, that have now um, gone to remote classrooms, Right. And that's universities taking this into their own, you know, hands and some without any um, cases of coronavirus on their campuses, but they're trying to be proactive. In the wake of this, the question that you've asked is so important because we have to think about vulnerable individuals. So if we're thinking about a university, and this may not be where you want it to go, but I just want to add to this, which is that on college campuses, they're now shutting dorms. Well, that might work for people who actually have families and homes to go to. But for students who are indigent, for those who've come from abusive family backgrounds, for those who happen to be immigrants, this is their home. Their dorm is their home. And to not put too fine a point on it, for those who've taken out loans and have now paid the university the Fourteen or fifteen or sixteen or twenty thousand dollars for their housing for this year or even just for this semester. Now it being kicked out, they don't get that money back. I mean, hopefully universities will be sensitive about these issues. So there are civil liberties concerns that we must be mindful about. And then we also need to be mindful, too, just about the ways in which, you know, institutions will carry out what they are thinking about in terms of being mindful and proactive. You know, think we want to be mindful that it just simply doesn't hurt those 
who are most vulnerable. I, I, I love that you that you lay it out that way because I think these are we are making choices and trying to pick the least bad option. Uh, certainly, that's the case uh, redoubled in the case of closing public schools, right, where many, 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 many children in this country are reliant on them for lunches. Uh, breakfast. I read s- mm-hmm. Breakfast. And, and I read somewhere a statistic that uh, 40% of uh, registered nurses in this country have kids enrolled, uh, you know, school-aged children. What, what are they going to do if their kids' schools are shuttered? So there's no great choices here. But I, you do raise this interesting framing question again, which is, it reminds me a little bit of the war on terror cases, Michelle, after 9-11, where everything you're describing uh, almost requires forward-looking, proactive, very quick decisions, not a ton of time to sort of sit around and develop a record and make uh, very, very nuanced choices. You have to act quickly. That was the theory after 9-11. Ticking time bombs everywhere and then work it out after. And somehow it feels as though that is, again, in direct conflict with how we think about judicial process, building a record, and civil liberties. So again, I feel like we're right back in that box where the kinds of things that need to be done uh, are going to be massively over-inclusive and massively encroaching on civil liberties. And I don't know whether there's a national consensus in this country to do that kind of thing. But as you say, there are massive costs. That's that's absolutely right. And to be clear, um, those who end up suffering the um, the the infringement on their civil liberties um, often are the people who are most vulnerable in, in a society. There will be stereotypes about the people who will be the carriers of disease, and often we will get that wrong. Right? You know, historically we have. You know when. Ellis Island was really a quarantine station. And what was very interesting was the way in which it was handled, right? So people were tested who were down below um, often, but not people who were above, you know, up above. That was absolutely ridiculous. Right? The idea that disease follows class and that it follows race um, is part of a racist type of ideology. And in fact, when we've seen the worst type of harms um, in the United States, such as smallpox, it was so many white folks um, died and were harmed by it because they presumed that it was only black people who could contract it. So you're absolutely right. I mean, there will be actions that potentially are over-inclusive. There will be things that are under-inclusive. And class-based matters um, are a reality here. We are not a country that has invested in childcare, in daycare, in providing the kinds of means for working class families to have reasonable and affordable alternative means. And now this will be when the chickens come home to roost. And this too relates to reproductive health care. I think it's one other matter that's really important for us to surface with this too. There is very interesting data coming out of South Korea, uh, as they have been doing so much testing in this regard, and we have not in the United States. And what they found was is that um, the majority of the people um, who contracted coronavirus there are women. 
And there are ways to explain this because for the most part, women have been caregivers and more exposed uh, to providing care to different kinds of people and in various kinds of situations. Now, it's also important to note that simply contracting coronavirus does not mean that one will die from it. Many people may end up having it and not even know that they had it. Uh, What this really boils down to is also having a very strong immune system. So one of the things that we actually haven't heard are the ways in which people can keep themselves healthy. And again, that's because, you know, we've seen a lack of coordination, a lack of clear action, a lack of a kind of coherent um, message. And and I want to tack one other thing onto this, because your point about decisions being need, decision needing to be made um, on a quick turn. One troubling aspect of this is that there are meetings happening behind closed doors. Uh, individuals aren't being informed. Uh, we're supposed to wait for reports from people who actually happen to not be medically trained. But the reality is that there are uh, virologists in the United States who've been studying coronaviruses for decades. These are individuals who could be part of a task force to help the United States government figure out what to do in a situation like this. SARS and MERS were also are also coronaviruses, right? So this is actually not new to us, but what we have not seen is the level of coordination and sophisticated uh, kind of implementations of plans that provide confidence for Americans. That's such a good point, Michelle, because I think that it and it a little bit goes back to my civil liberties question, which is in a country where there is already so much mistrust of government, so much mistrust of vaccines, so much mistrust of racialized policing, kind of the worst thing you can do is sideline transparency and sideline sort of open process in a time where we don't even agree on facts, much less what procedures are to be put into place. And I think that that it it feels a little bit like a powder keg to introduce any questions of, you know, we're going to do this behind closed doors, or, you know, Jared Kushner's going to make decisions for all of us uh, in a moment where uh, there's not a, a, a abundant sense of trust that any level of government, whether it's, you know, deploying the National Guard in New Rochelle, uh, whatever it is, I think some sense that uh, this may not be in my best interest. And that can only uh, be exacerbated by secrecy and lack of transparency. I want to just ask you one last question, which is, can you unpack it's such a complicated thing in a federalist system like the United States where this is not a, a, a by stroke of a pen an executive order. There are layers and really overlapping layers of municipal authority and state authority uh, and then federal authority. How do you unbraid it and think about who is in charge or is it simply the case, as you just suggested, that, you know, when the CDC fails to do something – we're going to see state authority when uh, New Rochelle needs to be locked down. That will simply happen on a local basis. Is there some unifying theory of how to look in a deeply federalist system uh, at who's in charge right now? That's a really important and a very good question. 
by default, typically, we look to the federal government as providing the final answer or trumping state law with no pun intended there. And there may be at state levels enhanced efforts to protect the health and safety of uh, its communities or states act when a federal government doesn't. By example, there's no federal right to an education, interestingly enough, in our constitution, but that's been baked into state constitutions. So there are times in which states will act to protect and to promote its citizenry when the federal government hasn't. In this particular instance, what we see is a real mishmash. In real time, we don't see a kind of coherent action plan coming from the federal government. There is a kind of trickling that's taking place. You see the CDC is seemingly a bit handcuffed. Um, You see that there is a lack of coordination uh, with international agencies, even when international organizations have attempted weeks ago to work with um, senior members of our, you know, federal government, you know, uh, President Trump and, and his administration. And so that mishmash further undermines the confidence then that individuals uh, would have. Right now, between states, there are different protocols in terms of how to handle something that might be a health crisis such as this. So between states, there isn't necessarily coherence in terms of states' laws. There isn't any kind of coherence vis-a-vis state and federal law in this domain. And so um, to some degree, we're really starting in some ways a kind of um, new and a fresh, although this is not new and a fresh that we've dealt with public health crises. Now, it affords an opportunity to try to get it right and to put the kinds of processes in place Uh, to aid in instances like this, because this may not be the last time when we get beyond this particular pandemic, which is what uh, the UN and the WHO um, has now called the coronavirus, this COVID-19. But we may see more of this in the future with more travel, more people on cruise ships, more people on airplanes, etc. So figuring out how we get this right while protecting civil liberties and civil rights is so important, while at the same time promoting the public health and safety. And so I I would close with saying, you know, what this also underscores for us is the urgent need of getting the right people around the tables to figure out these things. And we're not going to be successful at that if we shut out the researchers and the scientists who know most about these kinds of pathogens, viruses, etc. And I was going to close, Michelle, by just asking the question I think you've already answered, which is news you can use. What rights do you have if you are in a quarantine? But the fact is, it's just a patchwork. It's a state-by-state, minute-to-minute shifting patchwork, right? We can't tell listeners that it's the same in Minnesota uh, as it is in Texas because there's just no uh, coherent lay of the land, right? 
That's absolutely right. And I couldn't emphasize any more the importance of empirics. And how do we get those empirics in a situation such as this? Well, we need testing, right? Um, We need for individuals to be tested and our civil liberties don't just simply go away uh, because there is a, a virus that is afoot that might affect many people. That's also important to, to be understood at the very local level. And even though we might say, well, everybody knows that. No, we can see in instances, even when there is not a virus at foot, <laughs> there are certain people whose civil liberties become far more, more vulnerable every day. You know, I mean, with little girls being handcuffed at schools and taken off without their parents' permission um, to be tested and institutionalized about their mental health right? That's civil liberties violation right there. You don't lose your civil liberties um, simply because there is something in the air. You don't lose your civil liberties uh, simply because you become sick, right? So it's important to understand um, the primacy of due process, both procedural and also uh, substantive due process that yes, we do want to protect health and safety. And in times in which the state does do that, there are times in which our civil liberties are mediated against that. But there should never be a wholesale removal or the trampling of an individual's or whole community's civil liberties because we are struggling with uh, a health concern or even a health crisis. But we need good information. And the only way that we get that good information is by uh, doing the work and engaging in science and engaging with um, those who truly do understand these types of, of issues. And I couldn't underscore that uh, more. Science, fact, nuance, all good things (laughs) in the time of cholera or coronavirus. Uh, Michelle Goodwin is Chancellor, Professor of Law, and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at University of California, Irvine School of Law. Her brand new book, Policing the Womb, is well worth checking out. It really, really changed the way I think about a lot. And Michelle, thank you so, so much for your work on this and other things. It is a delight to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you so very much for having me on your show. And I wish all of your listeners good health. And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. Now, go wash your hands. If you want to stay in touch, or if you have questions that you want answered, you can email us at amicus at slate.com, or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. Till then, take good care. Hold up. 